in the long run, passivity won't pay off. It never pays off. If you want a life of meaning and transcendence, you're going to have to move. Aggression doesn't have to be toxic or damaging. Healthy aggression risks. It builds new things. It breaks through barriers. It's the key to living a life that matters. I'm Brian Tome. This is The Aggressive Life. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. I'm Brian Toman. You know, we're going to talk about something today that you're going to have to put your little aggressive cap on if you're going to hang in here, because we're going to talk about something you probably don't want to talk about. You probably don't, but I'm maybe even before I tell you what it is, I'm going to say, hey, if you are starting to buy into the idea that you've got to push on things that you don't like, if you're starting to buy in on the idea that just taking the path of least resistance is not the best path, if you're starting to buy in on the idea that some of the best, most meaningful, most helpful things in life are things that are difficult that you've got to aggressively push forward. If you're starting to see any light that I'm trying to shine in those corners of your life, then you're going to have to trust me on this one. We're going to talk about race today. Not, no, not racing. Especially, I, I, I lose foot races to everybody. Everybody. Especially, insert, stereotypical, bad comment there. Yeah, whenever we talk about race, someone gets hurt. Someone's upset. This is a conversation that is fraught with difficulty. This is a topic that our country is historically sucky at. And we're going to talk about it today. Welcome to the aggressive life. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to talk about something. I'm going to have somebody in the studio, a good friend of mine, Chuck Mingo. He uh, serves with me on staff at my day job. He's got a different skin tone than I do. And we've walked a lot of roads together. And we're going to walk a lot more roads together in the future. We want you to walk with us here for the next portion of time. The not-so-distant past, Cincinnati, Ohio, was a key spot on the Underground Railroad. To those on the railroad crossing the Ohio River and getting to Cincinnati marked a major milestone. They crossed from the slave states into the free states, but Cincinnati's racial history has been anything but squeaky clean. Riots, violence, segregation, oppression, bias, brutality have all been a part of the story of the city, which has been my adopted home for 25 years, and it's not getting better on its own. In fact, using 2016 U.S. Census data, it was determined that Cincinnati was the 10th most residentially segregated city in the nation. <laughs> something is not good in Cincinnati, and something is not good in our country as well. Don't do it, friends. Don't do it right now. I can hear some of you. Some of you are going, oh, no, I'm not going to listen to this aggressive life podcast. I'm not going to make some aggressive statements right now. You're white. I said I'm white. I'll just say it. You're whitey. You're whitey and you're going, oh, not another, not. Or you're black. You're black. You're going, oh, the last thing I need to hear is another white guy comment on race because he doesn't know myself. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Stop it, weenie boys and weenie girls. Other people can tell you something about race that you don't know or that you might disagree with but need to hear anyway. And that's what's going to happen to do. We're going to aggressively talk about race. Me and my friend and colleague Chuck Mingo, 
He's not taking those statistics sitting down. He's got a conviction that diversity is a strength and empathy can go a long way. Chuck Crow created Undivided, a six-week journey that helps people get to racial reconciliation. It was actually on the front page of the USA Today. It's a message that's sorely needed. Most recently, the Pew Center found that 58% of all adults, including 71% of African-Americans, believe that race relationships are generally bad. We're passively waiting for things to get better, and they're not getting better except for this man, Chuck Mingo, M-I-N-G-O, and Mingo is his name Welcome to The Aggressive Life. Man, I am excited to be here. What a what a great context setting and table setting for our conversation today, Brian. So happy to be here. What makes you qualified to talk about race other than you're black? Yeah, you know, although I would say being black in America definitely makes you qualified <laughs> to talk about race yes, <laughs> to does. some degree. But um, And we might also say, for those of us who uh, don't know, Chuck and I actually have a day job together. We work at this thing called Crossroads Church together. So we, we got a lot of familiarity with one another. And we're going to say some things that we say to each other all the time because we're trusted friends. And some of you for sure are going to go, wait a minute, you can't say that. <laughs> oh, I just did. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and we're going to keep saying those things. No, but you make a good point. I mean, I always tell people I'm not qualified because I've got a PhD in diversity or inclusion. That's not what qualifies me to be in this conversation. I feel called to be in this space. And I think part of the qualification is, quite frankly, the community that we get to co-pastor at Crossroads where over the you know over the life of crossroads god just brought a bunch of different people from different walks of life to be one community and as we live that out in a very real way not a perfect way um, there's a lot that we draw on from our own experience that we give into this conversation so let's paint the picture of that there is a problem you go first why do you think there's a problem with race in our country yeah well honestly i think the problem with race in the united states predates the founding documents of the country. And so when you think about the United States of America and how we got to where we are, I mean, let's just recognize truth and data. Data is there were people here before the aggressive settling of our country happened. And for a bunch of reasons, including their inability to withstand the illnesses that were brought over by European settlers, but also very intentional strategies that removed them from land and robbed them of their livelihood, um, the Native American, quite frankly, you can call it a Holocaust in our country, is part of what this country is built on. And so you build onto that this idea that, quite frankly, race wasn't a thing until it was made a thing, you know, and this was true for most countries in the world. Poor people got together and worked together regardless of race. That was true for time and infinitum. And it was true in America until it was understood that if there was something we could do that would in some ways divide the ranks of the poor in America, it would enable those at the time, there were the landowners, people who had more authority, to actually in, empower them to build their pockets and kind of create financial wealth. What they did was they introduced this idea of race, and particularly in America, it was a unique brand of that idea where you had Africans who had come to the country, many of whom were indentured servants, but many of whom were free people. But at a certain point, it was identified that this African race of people is subpar, subhuman, and therefore worthy of nothing other than being enslaved. And when that happened, there was a divide 
between poor whites, people who wouldn't have even identified as white, but would have identified as I'm poor from Ireland, I'm poor from, you know, whatever European country I came from. And that dynamic really created what has become the race issue in our country, this idea that based on the color of your skin, there is a subpar humanity that's written in, unfortunately, to many of our founding documents. And that's what we're dealing okay, with in our country. Okay, you're losing me here. So, you're losing okay. me here, okay? Yep. I, I understand someone's white, someone's black. I understand that. I understand Native Americans are here and we come in and, you know, wipe them out, take their land. I, I understand that. Now, you, now you're talking, I understand there's poverty. I understand there's have and have nots. I understand that. I understand there's, there's also things that are in our country that make it easier to be have wealth and things in our country that makes it harder to live because you're poor. I understand, but you're, you're, you're talking about something I honestly have not heard before. What, yeah, what, what, no. what, help me understand what you're saying. What are you saying, guys? Yeah, so what I'm saying is racism, as we think about it today, was an invention. It was a society invention that enabled and empowered people who were in power, who tended to be, were, were European certainly, and therefore white as we define racist today. Um, but in America... That was used to give an excuse for why we could kidnap and basically enslave whole groups of people simply based on that one differentiator, the color of their skin. And that's really that. what that's what really established what is the sad race legacy of racism and slavery in our country today. Oh, I, okay, got it. But yeah. you're not saying that that's a uniquely American thing. I mean, people all over the world try to make themselves feel better than somebody else because of their skin or, totally. or shape of nose or whatever. Okay, to, 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 okay. totally. But there, but there is a distinctiveness to the American racial racial story, which was color was the thing that was used to divide. It may not be only is in America right? now, that but is, that is that is that so we were the first ones. We one were, of we were, we were certainly one of the first countries to do that. Okay. Yeah. So, do you think we're getting better, or you think we're getting worse right now? Yes. <laughs> That's honestly how I feel. I mean, I think you know it depends on how you look at it. You certainly, if I look at the reality of our country, I think. Sadly, because of a lot of things, there's a lot more division. I think it's just easier to live in your echo chamber, whatever your echo chamber is. And by that, I mean, it's easier to live a life where you just surround yourself with people who think the way you think and media outlets that support what you think. And that's just true for all Americans. Doesn't matter what your race is, doesn't matter what your class is. So I think in so many ways, yeah, there's a challenge. But I also say better because more and more, and I'm encouraged by this, I think more and more people in settings where it wasn't a conversation years ago, are willing to have the conversation around, let's look at our past and let's look at what it would take for us to actually become a more United States of America. And so I'm encouraged by that and think that there's a growing energy for people to say, hey, let's move into this conversation honestly and let's see if we can't make progress where there hasn't been progress. And I also recognize that, you know, if I think about my dad's experience, my dad passed away last year. My dad grew up in St. Louis in the 20s and 30s and 40s with separate drinking fountains. Everything was segregated. And so clearly there's been a level of progress, quite frankly, at great cost to many people who've been leaders in this space. So I say yes. Yes, yeah. in many ways we are better. And yes, we have a long way to go. Let me just play the, play the role of, oh, somebody who seems to be doing okay in life. And they're not being affected by racism. Mm -hmm. They're, other than they're tired of it coming up with their news feed, they're not being affected by it. They don't understand what the big problem is. They don't How is this hurting people's lives or going to hurt people's lives, even if they don't agree this is a problem right now? 
That's a good question. So I would look at it this way. I mean, there's a couple ways to think about that. One is, I think all of us are impacted by this to some degree. P- part of the growing fear that I think is driving the divide in our country right now, it's never stated overtly, but it's absolutely in the water, is a day is coming when this country is going to be majority, not white. Wait a minute. Wait. Shocking. Are you <laughs> right? Wait a minute. Are you, <laughs> yes. Say that again. Yeah, right? So a day is coming, some would say as early as 2050, if you want to think about that early or late, um, where the country is going to be majority, not white, for the first time in the history of the country. And so when I think about that fact, I believe, and again, it's not stated, but that fact is absolutely driving the tribalism that we see to some degree. It's driving the hunker down. It's driving the fear factor up. All of that is true about our country. And so I would say all of us, because we live in this water, we swim in the same water, we're all impacted to some degree. So you can deny this is an issue right now, but you cannot deny this. Our world is being remade. It is going to be simply sticking your head in the sand and assuming everything is going to be okay and assuming this can pass you by is not reality. Right. It's not going to be reality for anybody. And so interestingly, you know, we we live in Cincinnati. You know, Mark Twain famously said, if the world is going to end, I want to be in Cincinnati because it'll end 10 years later in Cincinnati, right? You know, yeah. it was a statement about how Cincinnati's somewhat behind the times on different things. Actually not true as it relates to this. In fact, the county that we live in will actually reach that point where it's majority non-white five years before the rest of the country. Which is fascinating. So let's just play this out. Let's just think about, has Hamilton County been important, not important, slightly important in all of the last several election cycles? It's been massively important, right? It's been massively important. And I think this is part of the reason why. And so I'm not saying this to provoke fear. I'm just saying you really have to have your your head deeply in the sand to think you're not impacted by this issue. And the way that I would think about it is this. You can look at what's going to happen to our country as a problem, or you can look at it, which is the way I tend to look at it, as an opportunity. It's a unique opportunity we have to embrace the changing dynamics of our country, and that's that's what I like talking about. Well, what is it about us as human beings, white people who look at other people like you have a bigger nose than I do, and Mm -hmm. so you're you're Jews, you're uh, Jew, are you white, are you not white? I know that your hair, what is it about us as a human, you think, that that we're always trying to feel superior to somebody else? Yeah, I mean, uh, John Powell is a guy who leads uh, an institute that focuses on kind of bringing people together. And one of the things he says is that the problem for the 21st century is the problem of othering. And he uses this word othering. And I think it's a good, it's a good word because what it means is, and, and we know this to be true, it doesn't matter what the difference is, whether it's color, whether it's language, and you can look around the world and see examples of othering across all kinds of different dynamics, right? If you're a Steelers fan or a Bengals fan, I mean, there's all kinds of othering that happens. We will always, as humans, I think in our fallen, broken state, because obviously my thinking on this is informed by my faith, and I think in our in our in our imperfect state as human beings, where one of our biggest desires is belonging and security, one of the ways we try to cling to that is by saying, these are my people, and them, whoever them or they are, those are not my people. And so we find ourselves in these places where othering is just part of the fallen, broken human condition. And so, yes, in our country, 
the othering has been around racial lines, but not only, because like you said, you find othering within racial lines, you know, whether it's light-skinned African-Americans or dark-skinned African-Americans and the othering that's happened there over the course of time. Wide-nosed um, African-Americans and not wise-nosed. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether, you know, I know growing up in Philadelphia, for me, it was like, are you Italian or are you Greek or are you Jewish? I mean, all of all of those cultural and ethnic identities can also be sources of othering. So give us, give me your personal journey on this. How, yeah. have, you, how have you evolved over the last few decades? Yeah, so for me, um, my, my journey really starts when I was a kid. Um, you, you may not know this, Brian, but I've been black my whole life. Really? I've been black my whole life. Man. Amazing. So not a day has gone by where I haven't been black. Black all day. You've black been black all day. All day. That's right. That's right. Uh, one, of the, one of the great things we shared in our relationship early on is Brian used to read these books in the summer, and I don't think I ever made another recommendation of a book, but I gave Brian you had one. one. It was a win, so never, don't do another one. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Just step away. Step away when you're winning, right? But I gave Brian um, Baratunde Thurston, for those listeners who know him, wrote a book called How to Be Black. <laughs> And I, uh, I gave Brian that book. Not that Brian would become black, but it was just a great—it really reflected my personal journey. So my personal journey is growing up in an African-American community and church and family where for the first five years of my life, the only white people I interacted with with any regularity were my dentist and my doctor. Even the store where we did our shopping, there was a Korean store owner, so even that wasn't a white experience for me. Um, Miss Kim. I still remember Miss Kim to this day. And so that was my life growing up. And then when I went to kindergarten— I went to a private, suburban, Christian school, and that was the first experience I had with really being in the minority from a race perspective. And it was incredibly eye-opening for me. And I, I tell stories of pain from that time of, you know, being called the N-word for the first time and what that was like for me. And that, that experience deeply impacted me because when I was called that, my natural response, I say natural, it was probably a trained response, was I actually wound up hitting the kid who called me that and getting into trouble for that. And I had to work through what was that, what was the power in that word for me? How old were you when that happened? I was probably third grade, fourth grade. So, you know, still a kid. I mean, probably third grade, 12. First person did the N-word. Mm-hmm. Your first response was to punch him. First first response was to punch him. I just— Did, you, first, did he go down? Um— he didn't go down. I, was, I, I wasn't yeah. as strong and powerful as I am now. So he did. did he stop when you did that? He did. Oh, he stopped. He stopped. He stopped. Um, but yeah, so we had that experience. But I also remember going to my friend Andrew's house, Andrew McGrath. Um, if you're listening, Andrew, I still remember this story. It was my first time being in a suburban home, and his mom made lunch for us. And it was the first time that I had white bread with all the brown edges cut off. I don't think she made anything racist by that. That was just like what she did. And the sandwich was fluffernutter. Do you know what fluffernutter is? No, I don't know. Fluff. So fluff is it's uh, fluff is like basically marshmallows that you can spread on a sandwich with right. peanut butter. It was like heaven came to earth. It was incredible. <laughs> and I remember leaving the play date with Andrew telling my mom about this fluffernutter and I'll just say that black people weren't eating fluffernutter. That was not a black thing. And so <laughs> my mom goes to the grocery store and finds this fluff. And so my, my claim to fame is I think I'm the person that introduced fluff to the black community. So I don't know what, <laughs> what company made that, but I think they owe me some royalties. So, so I think about this world I grew up in where I started to notice these differences. And over time, for me, I would say the, the, on the whole, my experiences with different races and with different backgrounds were incredibly positive. And very formative for me. And it made me appreciate and desire that kind of diversity in my life. Um, And I would say as I got older and went into high school and then went into college, those were the times when I started to understand more and more that on the whole in our country, 
the experiences of diversity have not been positive, that there are painful stories of our history, including history in my family, that are connected to this thing of race. And so I would say for me, it was this tension of my experience with this is I want more of it in my life. But the experience in the context of the country is this is a difficult thing. And that just got to be more and more of my experience. And so I would say, you know, from high school and on, I, I always desired these kinds of conversations, but I also saw the challenge in having them as well. That's good. And then you came to Cincinnati, you got into a corporate job. And yeah. were you always thinking race on the front of your mind? For the most part, yes. I mean, because part of it too is just how you're acculturated in your identity. And I would say for me, growing up in a city like Philadelphia, um, I was proud to be black. I, I definitely saw that as a point of pride and therefore it was a point of my identity that I wanted to own and lean into. And so I was not ashamed at all of my cultural context. But I regularly found myself in environments where I would be the minority. So I moved to Cincinnati at the end of 2000, which is an interesting time to move to Cincinnati based on what you said in your opening. Um, I remember very clearly several months into my move would have been April of 2001 when uh, at that point it was the, the shooting that had happened with Timothy Thomas and Officer Stephen Roach in Cincinnati, officer-involved shooting, Cincinnati Police Department, among other violence that had happened to African-Americans in the community, and this unrest happening. And I was actually newer to Crossroads, and I still remember that night uh, at our old school where Crossroads used to meet, we had, a, we had a prayer meeting. You might remember that. We had a prayer gathering. I don't remember that. Yeah, we had, a, we had a prayer gathering. I don't even know how I found out about it. I mean, I was coming to the church, but it wasn't announced because the thing just kind of happened. So I don't know if somebody emailed me or whatever the deal was. And I remember coming to Hyde Park, uh, a, a neighborhood in, in Cincinnati that I would say is probably still predominantly white, certainly wealthy. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty predominantly white. It's pretty white. white. <laughs> it is white. I mean, there might be a couple dark-skinned folks, but no, yeah. it is white. It's super white, right? And so that was our church. And I remember coming to this prayer gathering, and I remember driving home because there was a curfew that night. And, you know, Inter Interstate 71 is our, you know, main highway, and you never would be on 71 at, I don't know, 7.30 at night, and it'd be clear in daylight, but it was because everybody was in their house for the curfew. And I remember getting calls from my family in Philadelphia that said, so, when are you coming back to Philly? Because you're definitely not going to live in a city where they had race riots tonight, are you? And I just remember being in this place where, I, I mean, in some ways, for me, it was like, I didn't live through the 60s, I didn't live through that, but I felt like I was back in the 60s. But here it was, 2000, I'm a young professional working at a corporation, living in even more lily white Mason, Ohio, which was a suburb right. of Cincinnati. The great white north. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> when it really was. I mean, there was nothing up there but polo fields and like, you know, P&G. So, um, so I just remember this whole conflicted feeling of what do I do with it? Do I run? Do, do I go back home? Like, is this a sign that this is not the place I'm supposed to be? Or is there something else afoot here? And so for me, that's, that's been an early part of my journey. It really has, even with Crossroads. Yeah, I, I remember, though, you talking about not feeling even that a church should try to accommodate all the races. You actually had a conviction that that wasn't possible or not necessary. That's not where you are now. Tell us about that journey. Yeah, so, man, I mean, there's so many, so many iterations of this for me. Um, to go back to our Crossroads story— Crossroads got a permanent building, and, you know, we've talked about this. We moved on the other side of the tracks, and I think all of us started to right. recognize there's real truth 
in moving to the other side right. of the tracks. Yeah, yeah, I, that was one of those things that we, we've we heard and believed, like, oh, I went to the other side of the train tracks. There's a lot of things that are truth that you don't think about, like down to brass tacks. What's that mean, down to brass tacks? It means that when the factory burns down, all that's left is the brass tacks. It comes from a reality, right? Mm-hmm. On the other side of the train tracks, train tracks used to, in some ways they still do, but definitely when they were built, they divide neighborhoods. There's one class of person lives on one side of the tracks, the other class of person lives on the other side of the tracks. And I didn't know this until we'd moved to church on the other side. It was just literally for me, just on the other side of train tracks, but it literally was economically and socially on the other side of the train tracks. And all of a sudden it opened up a whole new world of of, of colors and backgrounds that start coming yeah. to the church. Totally did. And, and at that point, I was of the opinion this is who God is bringing to your church. Your church needs to be responding to that aggressively. And this is, this is funny thinking about the aggressive light. Brian Tone wasn't moving aggressively enough for me. There's probably nobody's uh, ever told you that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I say you representing the church, not yeah, necessarily yeah. you yeah. specifically at that point. Because I, was, I wasn't on staff at that point. I mean, we didn't have, we, we had some level of relationship, but not like we have now. So, um, but I know for me, that was a struggle. And I went on a journey. And there's a couple books that really informed this journey for me. One called Divided by Faith, another called United by Faith. And um, specifically United by Faith gave language to something that I needed at the time, which was there are levels at which a church can pursue intentionally call it racial integration. And there's not a, you can't say there's a hard and fast biblical mandate that's like, thou shalt do it this way. Um, what I would what I would add to that is, I think if that's who's coming into your context, you need to notice that. And if you're about pursuing people, then you should be about pursuing the people that God's bringing to you, or at least the people in your proximity. And so for me, that gave me a sense of, all right, you know what? It doesn't mean Crossroads need to do like gospel week every other weekend because now we have more African-Americans coming to our church. Um, And that was a really important step for me because in that, where I landed was, but for whatever the plan is for Crossroads, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of this community. I want to represent that this is a community that can bring people in. This is the, the difficulty of this topic is I never feel like we win. It's, it's constant compromise constant somebody isn't happy there's uh, for sure i know i'm not sanctioning and doing things you would like me to do for sure you're because we're friends you understand that for sure there's initiatives you've wanted to done that i've said i've said no to mm-hmm. uh, for sure there are africans african americans at crossroads who wish the church was more xyz and for sure there's whites at crossroads they're going why are we here why, why does uh, the, the wish we were more xyz it's it is Man, it's it's just one compromise after another, and so oftentimes no one's happy about anything that's being decided, but that's kind of what comes with race relations, isn't it? There's no silver bullet here. No, no silver bullet at all, and in fact, the call is to the tension. Like, that's the, that's the deal. The call is to the tension, and— you know, I mean, again, from a biblical perspective, I mean, we see that—I I, I, love—I just love how honest the Bible is. I— like, if you really were trying to tell a perfect story, there's a couple passages in the Bible you would just take out. <laughs> One of them is, like, you know, the people literally have, like, tongues of fire from God's Spirit falling down on them in the book of Acts. Like, these people are clearly touched by God. And it's what? I don't know. Four chapters later, it's like the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews can't get along. And that was an ethnic tension. 
And, you know, the, the early leaders of the church are like, all right, we got an ethnic tension on our hands. How do we deal with this? And so they pick seven people, and I don't know if they pick seven so someone had a final vote. I don't know what that was about, right? But it's this whole thing of there's real tension around these things that doesn't get solved even in the prim and perfect, you know, right. first century church. Right. And I think that's a clarity that I've had is there's no way to not have tension. You're going to have tension if you try to ignore our race situation. And if you get engaged in the race situation, you're going to have tension. Yeah. Yeah. I just reminded us, we were, Chuck and I were in a meeting just, you know, just a couple, a uh, few weeks ago. And uh, we actually had a bunch of funders from foundations coming in to hear about this undivided initiative that Chuck and some others have started. And I've kind of knighted, throw my weight about it around from approval, but I haven't really invented the thing at all. But what do you know? It's something that's, it's, it's something that's actually getting white people and black people and brown people and yellow people in a room together for six or seven weeks to hear each other's stories and talk. It's something that's really first and, and only in class. And so now we're trying to get this to go across the country as a way to, to help some of our problems in our country. So it was a, basically a fundraising thing. And we had just a who's who in foundations because foundations realize this is a problem. There's just not many things to fund. And I got up and I, I don't know, I did five to 10 minutes and boy, I didn't say a couple things right. And some people in that room were not happy, you know? Yes. It was, it, it, and that's, it just remind me, you're, you're, there's always going to be tension around always. this. There's always, always tension. And, and I'm glad you said what you said too around, you know, like there's even the tension around in Cincinnati, the dynamics tend to be black, white, but that's not the only people who experience the pain of this right? or need to be in the conversation. So we've even had the tension within the thing that we've created. I've had the tension of like, all right, listen, yes, black and white is a foundation on this, but we have got to have conversations around the Hispanic experience in the United States and the Asian experience right. in the United States. And we've had to go there with undivided and understand like if this thing is going to be yeah. what God wants it to be. I think we've got to broaden this conversation and topic. People have to find themselves. So why, at the is, table. That? So why yeah. is that? Let's, let's talk shop here for a moment. Yeah. We, you and I both agree that um, maybe the dominant conversation around race in our country is the Hispanic conversation because our president is driving a lot of that with immigration policies and stuff like that. Um, whether those are right, wrong, or otherwise, you will debate that on another, on another thing. But that's really the thing. But but yet, African Americans have not wanted to introduce the Hispanic conversation into Undivided. Why is that? Yeah, I I, I will say I think because there's there's competing realities in this, and I'll start with the one that you just said. I mean, again, if you think about the growth, the 2050 number, all of that. To be clear, that number is primarily being driven by the Hispanic community in our country. I think that's true almost everywhere. I think that's true. I, somebody will fact check me on that if I'm wrong, but I, I think that's true almost everywhere. I know it's true here in terms of growth, right? Not, not, not necessarily whole numbers, so but Hispanic but people are enjoying the joy of sex and people like you and I aren't. They are being fruitful and multiplying. <laughs> they are doing exactly what Jesus called them to do. So, right. um, so I think that that's true to a degree. Um, so, so, so you need to have that conversation. You know, that, that's a port, important conversation. I mean, shoot, you know, the fact that we have a commonwealth called Puerto Rico, and how the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico plays out is a part of the U.S. story, right? That's a big part of our story. So we've got these other dynamics that we need to think about in the conversation. At the same time, here's what is true, and this is not my information. This is information from a really reputable organization, um, the Racial Equity Institute. What they would say is, regardless of how the race dynamics are happening in the United States, you can think about the black experience and the white experience as the bookends 
to the race conversation in America. And what, what they would say is this, no matter the group, there's not a group that has fared worse than African-Americans. Doesn't mean that they haven't fared poorly. And I would argue maybe the Native Americans you could put in the other end of the bookend, um, but that's a debate for another time. So yeah, I would say African-American, 98%, 98% of them elimination is Eliminated. pretty significant, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, like, right. I'm owning that. Yeah, yeah. And then the other end, they would say, and regardless of the group, no one has fared better than white Americans. And so in the race conversation, again, in the United States, you've got to at least keep those two groups in view. And so I think that's where the real tension is, is to the degree that we, quite frankly, eliminate either of those stories I think we're not doing justice to the experience. And particularly, again, when I go back to what I said earlier, what really created the racism that we have in the United States, what were the policies and the things that were put in place to support the enslavement of Africans coming to the country and the free labor that that produced and all of that. So I think that that's why people have attention around. We can't pull away from the African-American story because it is, in fact, a story still being written. That's right. In our, in our country's history. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, hey, let's take a break here. Let me tell you, this episode is brought to you by Groove Life. You can get 15% off your next silicone ring or watch band at GrooveLife.com. The promo code is TOME15. Right now, I'm wearing one of these rings. I've been wearing these rings, one of these rings nonstop for a long time. So if you want to try one of these out, they're pretty darn cool and affordable. You can use promo code TOME15 and you can get 15% off. There is just crazy tension around and nut stuff. Like even even as of this podcast, the word undivided may be irrelevant because we're trying to find another word because someone stole our word. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go there, right? You are now. Gonna go I there. absolutely oh, am going goodness. to go there. I absolutely are going. <laughs> we were we were USA Today. Front page, everyone could see it forever, undivided, only black-white thing has ever been created, only name ever, ever, ever. And then we found out that the Southern Baptists started another program. It was called Undivided. Yes. And like, oh, we didn't know there was one. Really? You didn't just like Google Undivided and see like... And um, that story, it's been a very, very frustrating story, but... That story also kind of speaks to the racial tension. Just, just brag on yourself, Chuck, because I'm still not agreeing with what you've done. Because, <laughs> you know, if Southern Baptists are predominantly white. Guess what? I'm white, and I'm not. I'm still pissed off about my quote-unquote white brothers. You, you took the high ground on that, and it had to do with, with what you're learning here with reconciliation. Talk yeah, about that. Well, it, it definitely did. And so uh, thanks for putting me on the spot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, this, this is the kind of stuff that um, a, yeah. a podcast, someone can opt into it or not. This kind of stuff never plays in other places, but that's yeah. kind of what you get for podcasts. Yeah. We sign up for it. You're right, man. And you know what? It, it, and, it's, and, it's a, and it is a lesson in being aggressive. It really is. It's a lesson in being aggressive in this sense. W when we found out that there was another initiative called Undivided that was a faith-based initiative. The called whole thing, the Southern Baptist Convention that yep. started after us. Yes. So so we, we reached out. You had a connection, actually, that got us in contact with the people over there. And I remember, you know, being on the phone with them and doing a Zoom chat and just saying, hey, this is going to sound really bad, but we need to have this conversation. I'm not sure that you came by your name honestly. And so we're just trying to understand that. And so maybe we started in maybe too aggressive posture. But as we got through the conversation, one of the things that became super clear to me was, um, first of all, again, my faith informs how I think about these things. I think we have a spiritual enemy. I mean, I go back to what I said about othering. Who does it benefit 
to have humans be divided. It certainly doesn't benefit the plan of God, which from the beginning to the end is about bringing people together, adopting people into a family. But, you know, if you're an enemy of God, then to divide and conquer God's people sounds like a good strategy. It's also a strategy that's been highly effective for thousands of years <laughs> to, the, to the point of bloodshed and all the other things that have come out of that. So for me, as we walk through this, and quite frankly, on the other side, as they walk through this, we both came to an agreement very clearly. It's like, look, whether we can establish prior knowledge or anything at, like, there, there's no data to support that. I'm taking them at their word. They're taking us at their word. And there's a verse in um, the Bible where Paul is talking about lawsuits among followers of Jesus. And in that verse, he says, why not rather be wronged? Now, you want to talk about something super controversial yes. as we talk about race, as we talk about any difference, as we talk about any place where you feel like you're not getting what's deserved or what's owed you. How about that one? How about the Bible challenging you to the aggressive stance of why not rather be wronged? And so as I wrestled with that, that was the verse that I kept coming back to and saying, listen, I don't know if we've been wronged or not. I really don't know that. I have my opinions yeah. about it. Very confident we would win it in a court of law. Right. We had our turn. Like we could, we could put, but, but right. We, we can't be divided with another Christian organization. Around and, something called undivided. Uh, right. That's exactly. about reconciliation. Exactly. Right? And what's the path? The path yes. is the path of Christ. And that's the path of being wrong. Jesus was wronged on a cross. Yes. He was wronged on a cross. So many of the inspirational stories that are in the scripture come from somebody being wrong and going through difficulties. So That's exactly right. my hat's off to you. You chose uh, in and of your own accord and your leadership to choose to be wronged rather than have more division. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. It was the weenie move to make. I'm not. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, you might have given up on it too early. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I love. We'll know in love 20 the, years if it was the right decision. I, lo I not, love. Right? The, I love the heart behind it. I love your heart behind it, and um, we'll see how God blesses it. And uh, yeah. man, we hope that the Southern Baptists have massive, massive success with yes. how they're going against yes, the yes, race yes. issue. And and uh, we know that they're hoping and praying that we have massive, massive success as well with how we're doing it because there's just there's just not a lot of wins. Chuck, why do you think we're not having more wins uh, racially? Um, or are we? Do you think we're having wins that I'm not aware of? Well, like I said, I do think, I think there's progress happening, but like many things, it's happening in the small circles. It's not necessarily always getting the major headlines. And I would say this, this is a very difficult and uncomfortable place to be. And so part of it is, and it's why I love talking about this on your podcast, we need aggressive leaders who will step into the space courageously. You and I have not stepped into this space perfectly, but I would say on both sides, we've stepped into this space courageously. We have both, we both have the scars to prove that we've stepped into the conversation. And as I think about any progress that's been made on this, that's been true. If you look at any history, any wins in any context, it's been someone willing to bravely step into the conversation, um, including Jesus, who in many ways was a person who stepped into the, the, the othering that happened in his day with a very different message. And so I think if I could say anything to the listeners, it's like we all have a sphere of influence where we can bravely step into this conversation. For some of us, it's about how we're raising our family. For others of us, it's about the organizations that we run and how we're going to make sure those organizations are places where equity and things around racial injustice are recognized. And we're having those conversations. And it isn't just perfunctory, but we actually want to do something and be something different. It's part of our culture. I think that's what this requires is it requires leadership. And so I think to the degree there's not more change, more progress, it's simply because, and I know this because I wrestle with this, 
this is a courageous step to step into a conversation where, like you said, you don't feel like you really ever get the win because the tension remains. Right. Let's talk as white man and black man for a moment. So let me let me let, let me talk to my people. You talk to your people. Yeah. Um. What do you mean, my people? Your what do you people. mean, you people? <laughs> you, you people. You, you people. You people. What do you mean, you yeah. people? <laughs> you, you people. You people over there with the. You know what I'm talking about. You people over there. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, I would just say to those who are uh, who are listening, who are of my color, hey man, come on, we've got a different experience in America. None of us can point to a time where we had significant pain in our life as a result of our skin color. None of us can. None of us can point to something in our justice system where we believe that we got a bad deal because of the skin tone that we had. None of us have. My, my, my friends who don't have my same skin, they all have stories of being pulled over for no reason. They all have stories of uh, other ways that they have uh, been tempted to feel like they're less than because of things that society is doing to them. And, and you know, if you don't know that, man, you, you got to get to know some folks. You just do. They might be wrong. They might be wrong. They're feeling, just because we're feeling something, it doesn't mean it's right. But you've got to at least get to know somebody's story. And we've got to realize as, oh, who was it? Uh, I keep wanting to say GK, GK Chesterton. It wasn't that. It was Louis C.K. Yeah, that's right. GK Chesterton. Two did, very different did, people. <laughs> he, he, did, he did a stand-up routine and he says, you know, he says, you know, if I had to be white or black, he said, obviously I would choose white. White is awesome. I, I could be bored at any point in the world's history. And as soon as I show up in the time machine, they say, oh, you're white. Here's your table. Be right here. But if I show up with another skin color, it's going to be bad. And, he, and you know, we, we laugh. He's, it was a very funny thing. And it's funny because it's very, very true. Those of us who are white, we just got to recognize we have a different, different experience. And that's what I would say to you. And I would set you up, Chuck, to answer this. I'll also speak for people who have my skin tone. We always feel like we're wrong. It's like any race conversation, it feels like the only conclusion is we're supposed to say we were wrong, we were idiots, we were this, yourself, which you're not getting it. Is, is there is there is there any responsibility? Anyone are we always the fall guy and fall woman? Yeah. It's I I, I feel that because I you know, obviously we've had this conversation. I've had this conversation with other white friends of mine. Um I think the thing that I would hope we could get to is a place where we get beyond blame to not I'm wrong, but what's my responsibility? So whether you say it's not my fault, I had nothing to do with it or not, it's like you are where you are. And I'll use a word that we haven't used yet. Um, I'm not going to use the word privilege because that word tends to shut people down. But I think what Louis C.K. and his humorous way of saying is there is an advantage and what I know and you know is as a leader, you can exploit your advantages for the good of other people. And so that's the question I would ask is not if you're wrong or not, but if you see and are willing to own an advantage, what does it look like to spend that advantage so that other people can benefit from it? And I don't think that means you have to lose. I, I really don't. I mean, I think about me. I mean, there's advantages I have. And when I spend those advantages for other people, I have a male advantage. I have, I have an advantage in our church from a leadership standpoint where I stand in the organizational hierarchy. And when I spend that advantage, I think it actually creates space for more people to win, not less. And what I would say to 
people of color, brown people, people who are listening to this podcast that are um, maybe more identified with my experience, my life experience, um, is a couple things. First, I would say I get it that this is a very fatiguing conversation to have. It's very fatiguing. I think a lot of times as people of color, we feel like we wind up in these conversations. We just wind up trying to educate white folks on our experience. Yes. And yes. that gets tiring. Yes. That gets on both really your tiring. end and, and our end. Right. It gets right. It gets really tiring. And I get that. Um, and I also would say, and this, and this may not be for everybody, but it's certainly for me. Um, there's a movie that came out some years ago called Selma. And it was based on, you know, the march in Selma and kind of the Martin Luther King aspect of that. And there's a scene in that movie that I just can't get out of my head. There's a woman in that movie that haunts me. And the woman that haunts me is this woman who was clearly, I don't know, in her 60s. She was older. Think, think your classic black church lady. She's dressed up. She's got her stockings. She's got her dress shoes. She's got her purse. She's got her hat. And she goes the first day when they make the march. Um, I think it was Bloody Sunday. I can't remember. One was Bloody Sunday. One was Tuesday. Something like that. But she goes. And you know what's going to happen. Like, you know, they write the, they, they did the movie perfectly where you're like, you feel this woman, you're hoping the best for her, and you see the officer charging on a horse with a billy club. And then the next scene is they're back at the church and you see this woman basically having her head wrapped because he, she got her head split open with a billy club. And so I, I just can't get that woman out of my mind because as much as I get fatigued and as much as I get tired having this conversation, um, I have not yet drawn blood or had drawn blood drawn on me for this conversation, but she did. And so did a lot of other people like her. And so for me, I have a responsibility, I feel, to build on the work that they did because the work they did, in this case, in a lot of cases, was deeply rooted in what they believed about human dignity and also what they believed about God's call for love and what it looks like to have a beloved community, as Martin Luther King talked about. So for me, I would say to folks that are of color, man, I, I think that there is an opportunity we have to stay in a very uncomfortable fight and be willing to get uncomfortable so that progress can be made because it won't be made if we walk away from the table. I don't believe. All right, let's do the lightning round. You ready, Chuck? I'm ready. You got to do these in real quick, quick fashion. Okay. Like two, three sentences. Here we go. Okay. Hero you most look up to when it comes to racial reconciliation. Definitely Martin Luther King because how faith informed his approach, but also how honestly great of a leader and a strategic he was in the work. I don't have any friends who don't look like me with a different skin color. How do I make some? You probably work with some. So I would say step out of your comfort zone and invite one of them out to coffee or dinner. Break your, break your normal routines and find a way to invite someone different into your life. Something that is good news about race relations in our country. P part of the good news is I think the, you know, Gen Y and our kids, I think they see this very differently. I'm very hopeful as I think about how they engage in this space. Must read book on this topic. Besides the Bible? Yes, besides okay. the Bible. Besides, besides the Bible, which is important to read for this. Um, besides the Bible, I would say, um, I think, and actually, I'll, I'll make it even easier. Read Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King. It's not even a full book. Powerful. Most aggressive move you've made in the area of racial reconciliation? My most aggressive move, for sure, was being very honest about my anger and lamenting in public when once, once again, an officer was acquitted after the uh, killing of an unarmed, unarmed black man. Most poignant moment you've experienced while in Undivided? Oh, man, it, it, it's the dinners. 
the sixth week when people are having dinners at homes. Uh, let me just give context for this. Um, first time we did a divided, 1,200 people went through it. And one of the data points we had from before they started was 50% had never had a person of a different race over to their house for dinner. And actually, if you go right now to hashtag Kurds Undivided, you will see pictures from all the different times we've done Undivided of people having meals together. And that is absolutely the most poignant moment for me. That's what it's about. Yeah, that, that is powerful. Inspiration that keeps you going on difficult days. Man, it's community. I am so thankful to be surrounded by a community of people who love me, who push me, who challenge me. I mean, whatever it is you're trying to do to be aggressive at life, you've got to have community around you, and that's what keeps me going. One way your children's experience around race is different than yours. Yeah, man. My, well, first of all, my wife is Puerto Rican, so my kids have, within our home, they have a multiracial experience, which makes it unique for them. And my kids, I'm telling you, my kids love and celebrate the diversity of their friends. One of my, one of my kids' his best friend is from Egypt. And I love that. I love that they just get to be friends and share all their differences together like that. So my kids have even more opportunity than I do. friend uh, walk like an Egyptian? <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do that stupid stuff all the time. <laughs> okay. But, uh, uh, by the way, speaking of, speaking of that, uh, uh, I'll, give, I'll give you the, the last, one of the last words here. Um, just, well, anything I've said today that you wish I wouldn't have said, you want to counterbalance, you know, I, I know I've said some, whatever is just, just go ahead and you call me out on some stuff or round out some things. Anything that I said that you were, eh, you put a PS on that. And the PS would be this. <laughs> I, I think the, <laughs> the, one, the one and the only one <laughs> walk like an Egyptian. No, no, no. I mean, that's, that, that's you being you. Um, I, I, w- I would just say, I think it's very clear that in this issue, the greatest progress that has ever happened has happened distinctly from a nonviolent perspective. That's good. The context we live in, we think violence is the option on a lot of things right now. And I just would say, right. whether it's violence in our words, all that. And just to know, like, man, there's something about this Jesus way. There's something about this, like, willing to be wrong yeah. way that actually does seem to set up the long-term win. You're 100% gl- right. Glad you brought that out. And I'm 100% thankful that you are my friend and we are, we are partners in ministry. Same here, brother. Yeah. All right, Chuck, uh, how could people follow up with you, see you on social media, hear what's going on with Undivided, talk trash on Baptist? How, how, would, how, would, any, how would anybody go ahead and that's do great. that? That's great. Yes. Hey, you can follow me. I'm at Chuck Mingo, and that's true for uh, Twitter and Instagram and also for Facebook. So you can, you can find me on all those platforms. And as more things happen with Undivided, I'll be sharing them there first. All right, boys and girls, you hear it here, right, with my good friend, Chuck, M-I-N-G-O, and Mingo is his name. I will see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.